Good morning, everybody. Can you hear me okay? Okay. I'm glad you all came this morning. It's a bit early on a Sunday, but welcome to the Edinburgh International Book Festival. We're here today to talk with Meg Rossoff about her new book, Just In Case. Probably all of you are here because you read How I Live Now, which was internationally acclaimed and a bestseller. It won the Guardian Fiction Prize. It was nominated for the Orange First Fiction. It's an amazing book. And the second one, although it's not a sequel, is equally stunning. So she's here to talk to you about that today. Hold your questions till the end, and we'll address those all then. And there'll be a signing in the children's bookshop around the corner after. OK? So help me welcome Meg Rossoff. Oh, <laughs> yes. I woke up this morning, um, and I had had instructions to phone my um, editor to meet in the lobby in time to come and talk here. And I phoned her an hour early, um, because I'm, I've just come from the States, and I'm slightly jet-lagged, and my brain is very, very scrambled. So it's, um, it's uh, 5 AM, my time. So you have to excuse me for um, any kind of complete incoherence. Um, anyway, I thought I would talk a little bit today about um, what I want to be when I grow up, um, which you might think is the sort of thing I should have figured out by now, um, being in my late 40s. And and, um, and I think possibly I have. Um, but it took me a very, very long time to, to figure it out. And um, I was thinking about the subject when I was in the States this time. Uh, I took my nine-year-old daughter and the, um, I don't know if anybody's read my picture book, Meet Wild Boars, but the, I have a wonderful illustrator for that who's Australian and lives in, um, in Brooklyn. But she was visiting on Cape Cod. And so we took uh, the two nine-year-old girls and her six-year-old son on a whale watch. And we kind of drove off into the Atlantic and no whales, no whales, no whales. And they don't promise that you're going to see any whales. They just say, well, we hope you'll see some whales today. And um, eventually, we, we got far enough out. And this voice came over the tannoy. And it said, if you look off to your left, you'll see a pod of uh, humpback whales frolicking in the sea. And um, so we looked off to the left, and we saw these wonderful humpback whales. And the girls, the two nine-year-olds, were going, oh, yeah, whales are really cool. Um, but the little boy, my friend's little boy, was so excited that he couldn't speak. He, was, he actually had his mother's hand in his mouth, and he was sort of biting it, leaving great big teeth marks in. And when, we got, when the boat pulled in at the end and we all got off, um, he said, Mommy, I know what I want to be when I grow up. And you could see her face just kind of light up, because secretly every mother wants their child to be a marine biologist. Um, <laughs> And um, she, we all went silent for a second. And he said, I want to be the lady on the tannoy <laughs> who, who says we should look at the whales now. Um, now, I only tell that story because I think deciding what you want to be when you grow up is actually a terribly difficult thing. And, and sometimes, um, like me, you know exactly where you are when you're six or seven. And then you get waylaid. In my case, I got waylaid for about 30 years. Um, <clears throat> but I started out at, as a sort of five, six, seven-year-old as knowing that I was terribly good at writing and um, not so much good at stories, but I was a fantastic reader, as lots and lots of writers are. Um, and I, mainly I read um, horse books, but not only horse books. And I used to write 
horse stories all about the stallion standing proudly in the field and the foal in the shadow of its mother and all that kind of stuff. And my parents obviously thought I was a genius. Um, and I think sort of more or less took for granted that I was going to be a writer when I grew up. Uh, by the time I was about eight or nine, I'd uh, gone to work at the Science Museum where I grew up in Boston. Um, and I was the, um, uh, the job was a, um, I just helped cleaning cages mainly. But it involved handling snakes a lot. And I fell in love with reptiles. And with a boy at school, I then um, invested in a small uh, alligator, about this big, which I brought home. And um, if you'd ever met my mother, you would realize that this wasn't going to last. Um, it ended up in his bathtub, getting bigger and bigger and bigger and bigger. I can't remember what happened to it. And there are all those urban myths about um, alligators in the, living in the sewers. And I suspect ours is one of them. Um, but I, I, the, uh, my other really great love, other than horses and reptiles, was animals in, in general. And so by that time, I thought maybe I would be a, a zookeeper or possibly a horse trainer or um, a dog trainer or you know something having to do with animals. And as I kind of, then I thought, well, maybe I'll write books about alligators and horses and um, uh, dog training and things like that. <clears throat> the problem was, as I got further and further into school, um, I realized that I was good at lots of different things, which always sounds like a really fabulous thing when you're, you're a kid, because everybody says, oh, you're terribly good at geometry, and oh, you're terribly good at biology. Um, but it becomes more and more confusing. And so I kind of drifted away more and more from, from writing, um, because I thought, well, how, do, how on earth do you decide what you're going to do? If you're good at biology, well, maybe I should be a doctor like my father, or um, a zookeeper, or you know, whatever. whatever. And, I applied to university and um, did a course in English. And I just always felt like there was something more, something else I should be doing. I was quite good at art as well. So I applied to a course in, um, in London to, uh, to do sculpture for a year after my third year at university. And probably didn't quite realize at the time, but they were desperate for foreign money because the government was paying for um, all English people to go to art school. And they had to run the art school somehow. So I suspect they looked at my slides and thought, yes, well, at least she'll pay. <laughs> and um, I knew almost immediately that I was in the wrong place. Um, it was St. Martin's in London. And in those days, they, were, um, they did almost exclusively um, steel sculpture with rusted Corten steel. And they kept, and I arrived, imagine this, arriving from, from Harvard, where, which is terribly preppy. And um, I got off the plane by myself. I was 19, um, in a little kind of wraparound corduroy skirt and a little Fair Isle sweater and you know, a little blow-dried fringe and my kind of sensible shoes. And I arrived in London in 1977, where kind of punk was in full swing. And at St. Martin's, uh, it was the coolest bunch of people I'd ever met in my life. And I had to pretend to have lost my slides. Um, on the day that everybody went and looked at everybody else's slides to discuss them, because mine were so kind of um, conservative. So um, that really turned out to be a, a, a kind of terrible mistake. I really wasn't any good at steel sculpture. Um, I, I didn't understand it. I had no idea what they were going on about. But the good thing about it was 
I had to find a place to live, and um, I answered in a little ad that I found at the, um, uh, where was it, some, I don't know, the timeout was on strike, I remember that, but there was a, a board that <coughs> had offers of um, extra rooms, and I went to live with an architect in Camden Town, and he was incredibly lazy, and I think was, uh, he told me later that he um, had interviewed a number of people and that had taken me because he thought that I was unfanciable, and so it wouldn't run him into trouble, which I thought was very kind of him to tell me, actually. But we did actually fall in love, and he had a little sports car. Well, I, well, I fell in love. I think I was just there, and he didn't like going very far. Um, and, um, and the year really completely changed my life, and it, it made me think that, A, I, I didn't want to be an artist. Um, instead, I married one, which was a whole other mistake, but we'll go into that later. Um, and I, I came back, and I was so full of excitement and, uh, and the absolute thrill of the, the energy and electricity of, of London in 1977 and 78 that I wrote an article all about the punk scene and um, you know, people wearing bin bags all held together with safety pins and going to see the first Clash concerts at the Music Machine in Camden and the Stiffs tour and all this. And um, <clears throat> I wrote it up as an article. And for reasons that puzzle me to this day, <clears throat> I sent it to Glamour. Um, and um, I got a letter back from them. I think it was a form letter that they had specifically made up just for me. Um, and it said something like, to whom it may concern, please do not ever send us an article ever again. <clears throat> and um, I took it very much to heart. Um, and of course, everybody tells you when, you when you first tell anybody you want to be a writer that you, you know, that J.K. Rowling had 15 rejections on Harry Potter and that you have to be, you know, that people uh, wallpaper their walls with their rejection slips and that you have to be really... Um, strong and come back again and again and have faith in yourself and all that kind of stuff. Um, but I lost heart immediately uh, after submitting this one article. And I decided that there was nothing for it but to go work in publishing. And um, I moved to New York City and got a job in downtown New York, which in those days was, uh, was as grim as you can possibly imagine, in, a, um, in an academic publishing house. Now, I was such a kind of, I was so perverse about uh, recognizing what it was that I should be doing and what I could be doing, that when somebody offered me um, an interview at Condé Nast, I thought, I don't want to go work at Condé Nast. It's all those terrible magazines like Glamour and Self. And um, so instead, I got a job at this academic publisher, and they had me um, editing a magazine called, it was a uh, scientific journal called um, Behavior Disorders Monthly. And I had absolutely no qualifications for this at all. They gave us a kind of afternoon um, editing course, which was, you know, how you, you're supposed to show when you want to get rid of a, um, a dash at the end of a sentence and you know what uh, what signs you make if something is spelled wrong and all that kind of stuff but aside from that I was basically 21 years old and knew nothing at all about editing so these very learned journals these very learned journal articles would come in and um, and I would edit them in the way I thought was right and I thought most of them were much too wordy and went on at great length about things I didn't really care very much about 
So I would just take out whole paragraphs and move sentences around and all that. And we'd send it back to the author, who would then send it back to us with all the changes that I'd made reversed. So it was exactly as it was to begin with. Um, and then we would send it to, uh, to publication. Now, I wasn't paid very much money at all. I was paid, I, even then, I mean, this was about 1980s, it was, I think, $7,100 a year. And I thought this was a, a absolutely outrageous. They, they were paying me so little money until I realized that my only function in the organization was to slow the whole process down by two months. Um, so my early experiences with publishing were really not all that good. Um, and I kind of drifted from there. Somebody offered me a job at People Magazine. And I went there for a bit. Um, and then I went to the New York Times. And eventually, my art director at the New York Times was offered a job in advertising and phoned me up and said, do you want to come along? And um, this was a, a kind of great moment where I, I always felt that I should have sort of looked deep into my, my soul and, and really contemplated the kind of the meaning of existence and do I really want to spend the next 20 years of my life selling um, instant coffee and panty liners and, you know, frozen dinners to, uh, to people I didn't know and would never meet. But instead, they were offering me enough money to pay the rent. And so I took the job instantly and uh, found myself working in advertising. And this was a kind of, this, I d actually worked in advertising for 15 years, um, having stumbled into it absolutely ignorantly from the very beginning. Um, and I knew pretty much, although I, I, I mean, everybody thinks it's sort of kind of quite glamorous thing to do for a living. If anyone's thinking about it, let me tell you, it's not glamorous. It's absolutely depressing. And it's the sort of thing that um, the, the level of competition is such that um, I made almost no friends in 15 years because you knew that the people who were being nice to you in the next office were secretly hoping you would fall under a truck and die. Um, <clears throat> because that would be a little bit less competition for them. And. Um, about every five years, I would sort of recalculate. You know, if I worked in advertising for five years and I lived to be 80, then that would be, um, what is that, 120th? Is that right? Yeah, well, sort of, I don't know. Anyway, that would only be a, a small part of my life, and I could say, well, it wasn't completely wasted. Um, and eventually, I moved to I moved back to London because I thought I really desperately need a change in my life, um, and I loved living in London so much. And even though I didn't have a work permit and I didn't know how I'd stay, I thought I'm just going to do it. I'm going to jump off, and and um, that's when I met my husband. The the first week I was there, uh, and he was a painter. He'd been at St Martin's, but at a different time um, from me. And we have an absolutely fantastic marriage, and I love him dearly. But um, being a painter is not the kind of job that makes tons and tons of money. And so I had to go back and, and get another job in advertising. Um, and then, let's see, I had um, about 12 years living in London where I was working in advertising, during which I got fired about every 18 months. And they were trying to tell me something, I realize now, and I really just wasn't listening. Um, about every 18 months, they would call me into their, the boss would call me into my, their office and say things like, you seem to really hate your job. I feel I'm doing you a favor. And I thought, well, you're not doing me a favor. I'm out of a job now. I have to go find another job. 
and it, it went on for years. Um, and the good thing about advertising is that every time you get fired, um, they hire you again, sometimes at the same company, for 20, 30, 40% more money. Um, and I felt that this was a kind of a yet another great example of um, how you can secretly know what it is you want to do and what you should be doing and somehow not get your head around actually doing it. Um, and all the time, in the very back of my mind, I was collecting examples of people who hadn't written their first novel until they were first, I used to think, well, he didn't write that novel till he was 40, or well, he didn't write that novel till he was 50. Um, and there was a great example of um, a Portuguese writer, uh, Jose Saramago, who hadn't written his first novel till he was 57, I think, and he then uh, won the Nobel Prize for it. So I kind of put that in the back of my mind. I thought, well, I'll write my first novel when I'm 57, and I'll, I'll win the Nobel Prize then. Um, and then uh, my sister got ill with cancer, and I suddenly started thinking, well, what if I don't live till I'm 80? What if I don't even live till I'm 57? I mean, what if it all goes somehow, this plan of going on and on and on and on, doing things that I really hate, doesn't quite work out, and I have to, um, you know, I find myself 87 on my deathbed saying, I'm just going to finish this campaign for frozen peas before I die. So I took a couple months leave of absence from my job, and uh, they seemed really pleased that I wouldn't be in the office for a couple of months. And I wrote, uh, I, I always knew I was lousy at plot. Um, um, this is one of the things that had kept me from, from writing a book or from ever trying to write a book. I knew I could write. I knew I, I knew I could put words together into sentences, but I just wasn't the sort of person. And you'll find that a lot of writers will say, oh, I always made up stories for my dolls, and I always made up stories for my friends, and I had fantastic fantasy life, and, um, and I told my children wonderful bedtime stories when they were young and all that. And I just never did any of that. I never, and to this day, my poor daughter is always asking me um, about my dog, Sam, that I had when I was a child. And we had my dog, Sam, um, for, uh, she lived to be 16 years old. And I've managed to remember three stories about her. Um, and that's, that's the end of it. And this causes my daughter endless frustration. Um, so when I sat down to write a book, I thought, I can't really make up a story from scratch. So what I'll do is, <clears throat> I'll go back to the books I loved as a kid, which, as I was saying, were mainly horse books. Um, there were sort of two kinds of horse books. There was the, there were the Black Stallion books. I don't know if they're still around, but they were they were all about a boy who, who gets in a shipwreck with this fantastic wild black stallion, and they become friends, and he tames him, and he turns him into a racehorse, and fantastic. And I'd read every single one of them. Um, and then there were the slightly more girly horse books, which were often about a girl who falls in love with a, with a horse but is too poor and can't afford the horse. And then there's a rich girl who has this fabulous horse. And the rich girl and the poor girl hate each other. And then by the end, they're friends. And the rich girl gives the poor girl the horse. And they all live happily ever after. So I thought, all right, I'll write that book. And, um, and I did. I wrote a book called Horse Therapy. And uh, it took me two or three months to get through it. It wasn't the finest book ever written. You'll notice you haven't um, seen it in print, and you probably never will. Um, but it was enough to convince me that 
I could probably write animal arc books, which secretly was always my fantasy. <coughs> um, and in the meantime, I was working on a campaign for Purcell washing powder with um, an illustrator that I'd found. This is the, the one on the whaleboat. Um, and that we flew her to London to meet the whole team and to get to know us and all that. And she came to lunch with us. And while we were supposed to be talking about biological washing powder, uh, she and I snuck off to a corner and realized that we were getting along very well. And I said, look, I've, I've really always wanted to write a book. And she said, well, I really want to write a book too. Let's write one together. So I gave her a few ideas that I'd sort of been thinking about in the back of my head. And we were working on a campaign about monsters. Um, <clears throat> And she said, yeah, yeah, the monsters are OK. And then I told her a story that my daughter typically had made up, because I don't make up stories, um, about these wild boars that we found in the um, orchard when we were on holiday in Italy. And my daughter was only four at the time, but we heard them at night. We never saw them. But there was an orchard right below our window, a plum orchard. And we heard these boars at night making the most hideous noises crunching and snorting and stomping and slurping. And, um, and my daughter said, gave them names. She said, they're called Horace, Boris, Morris, and Doris. And uh, we made up a little wild boar that went around like this. And she was trying to give it a bath all the time. She thought it was hysterical that they were filthy and horrible and rude. So we sat down and we did a, a wild boar book together. And she took it to her publisher in New York. And they were really interested in it, and then took it to um, her agent, took it to Viking as well, and they were quite interested in it. And suddenly we had this little um, auction on our hands. At the time, I was thinking, yippee, I'm going to quit my job, and on the back of wild boars, I'm going to live happily ever after. Because when you think about publishing a book, I don't know if, if all writers are the same, it never occurred to me that I ever have to write another book. I thought the goal was to get a book published, and that would be the end. And somehow, um, I got so much the wrong end of the stick that I thought if I wrote a children's picture book and it was published, then I could quit and just live happily ever after on this on this one book. Um, <clears throat> apparently, the average price paid for a first picture book is something like fifteen hundred pounds. Um, so that was a little bit of a pipe dream, I think. But um, anyway, I went to uh, I, I asked every single person I knew because I thought now I need an agent. I'm absolutely rubbish at money. And I asked every single person I knew in the whole world if they knew an agent. And one person did. And I went to see her. And she said, well, yeah, uh, I like the picture book, but I don't do picture books. And I like the horse book, but you know, is anybody really buying horse books these days? And after all, there's quite a lot of sex in your horse book. And um, I think you might have got the demographics slightly wrong. Uh, and she sent me to someone else who sent me to somebody else. Um, and then the first agent called me back and said, look, I'm going to take you on, but I want you to write another book. And uh, I said, OK, I'll write another book. Well, you know, What should it be? And she said, look, it doesn't matter what it is. Just write the absolute best book you can write. Don't think about your audience. Don't think about the subject. I was saying, you know, can you have? Swearing. I mean, can you have? Is there are there limits? What what can you do for for kids' books? Could, you know, does it have to be about something in particular? 
And I was sort of thinking about a genre book, like a horse book or a, you know, a diary or something like that. And this fantastic agent really saved me by saying, pull out all the stops, write the absolute best book you can, and if it's good, then we'll sell it, no matter who it's talking to. And it reminds me of a quote that I saw um, recently. Uh, <clears throat> somebody asked uh, Maurice Sendak, you know, who wrote uh, Where the Wild Things Are and um, In the Night Kitchen, those wonderful picture books. They said, um, who, who, who do you write for? And he said, I don't write for adults. I don't write for children. I just write. And um, I think that's a really wonderful way of looking at it. And that's what I tried to do with How I Live Now. Um, I was trying desperately to impress my agent. And uh, I thought, this is it. This is my big moment in life. This is my big turning point. If I get this right, then I never have to go into advertising again. I never have to be fired again, which was a really, really big um, um, inspiration. Because in retrospect, it's kind of quite nice to tell people you were fired six times from advertising. It makes you look like you were really cool and a rebel. and you know, you really should have been a writer all along. But actually, when it's going on, being fired lots and lots is incredibly depressing after a while, especially if, you, if you're not looking at the whole picture and realizing that the reason they're firing you is because you're rubbish at what you do. Um, so I went off, and I wrote How I Live Now in a kind of burst of, of kind of creative intensity. And I was working full time. I had a four-year-old daughter at home. And I just worked. I worked at night. I worked during the day when I was supposed to be writing ads. Um, and I really kind of just raced through it. And in three months, I sent it to my agent. I sent a first draft to my agent uh, saying, is this the sort of thing you were talking about when you said a book? And um, luckily, she said, yeah, this is, this is absolutely brilliant. Um, and I often think. The, the third agent that I went to see um, had said to me, yes, I love the horse book. I love horse therapy, and I'm sure I can get a publisher for it. And I often think about fate, which is one of the big subjects of Just In Case, for anybody who's read it. If the first agent had never phoned me back, I would have gone with the third one that I saw. And probably now I would be writing something like Animal Arc books. But because the first one phoned me back and said, get out there and write a fantastic book, I pulled all the stops out and wrote a book for myself and for my agent and not really thinking too much about what a children's book was or what people thought of as a young adult book. Um, so yeah, so there's a bit of, of uh, a sort of fork in the road and, and something that I think of often as, as being an amazing little kind of burst of fate. Um, anyway, I wrote How I Live Now, and uh, we had an auction in London and then a, another auction in um, New York. And uh, suddenly it looked as if there might be enough money for me to, to quit advertising and really try to work full time as a writer. And I called up my mother, whose dream, her, her whole life, her dream had been, like my friend with, a, with the um, uh, marine biologist, that I would be a, a famous writer someday. So I thought, of all people, my mother will say, you know, get out there, do it. You so I phoned her up, and I said, look, Mom, I've just got this, you know, this big advance from America. I, I was thinking of 
of maybe trying to be a writer. And she said, whatever you do, don't quit your job. <laughs> now, she was also the same person who my entire life had been saying, I think boys would like you better if you wore more pink. And um, although I have uh, respect her enormously, um, I had found over the years that um, if she said turn left, it was always best if I turned right. So when she said don't quit your job, uh, I went in the next day and, and gave in my resignation. Now this was a very, very exciting day for me. It was the first time I'd ever quit a job. Uh, and I kind of expected that when you do quit a job, your employers come back to you and say, you can't leave. We now realize that you're going to be a famous writer. Here's tons more money. We want you to stay. And I sort of waited. After I gave them the letter, they read it. And they sort of said, bye. <laughs> anyway, I guess that confirmed what I already knew, which was that I was doing the wrong thing for, thir for 18 years or 15 years. Um, so I left. I left work. I packed up my, uh, my ads, <laughs> stuck them under my bed, where they remain to this day. And uh, um, I got a, a second really fantastic piece of advice, which was from my foreign agent, um, who was handling all the foreign rights. And he said, uh, whatever you do, get your second book written before, you, uh, before your first book comes out. And I thought, all right, that makes sense. Um, but you know, it does seem like, it does seem like kind of a, a bit of a um, production line. Why, why should I have to write the second one so quickly? Can't I kind of bask in the glory of the first one? And he said, just because everybody's paid a lot of money for a book, doesn't guarantee at all that it's going to be a success. And you know, you hang around for a year between now and when the book comes out, and your hopes will get higher and higher and higher. And if it's a disaster, you'll go into a deep, deep depression and a tailspin. You'll never write another word again. You'll sit in your room staring at the wall, and you'll wonder why you ever left advertising. On the other hand, if it is a big success, you're, you know, people will tell you you're wonderful, and your head will get all swollen, and you won't be able to get through doors, and nobody will be able to talk to you. And you'll be so distracted by praise that you'll never write another book again. So the best thing to do, really, is get the second one over first. So I wrote the second book, which was Just In Case. And uh, I got, unlike How I Live Now, which kind of came out in one easy draft, um, I decided that if I was going to be a real writer, I couldn't write all my books in the first person, because real writers didn't do that. Uh, and <clears throat> I, I'm not really sure where I was getting my ideas from. But I really was so ignorant about writing, despite the fact that I'd read about 100,000 books in my life. You'd think I would have kind of got a sense of, of what does make a real writer. But I never really noticed things like first person, third person, um, how long a book is supposed to be. I remember sending an email to my agent saying, um, I have a book here. Uh, how do you know when it's finished? And she said, well, you know, the average uh, young adult book runs somewhere between fifty and 80,000 words. And uh, so I looked down, and it was about 51,000 words. And I thought, right, that'll do it. Um, and uh, at one point, I phoned up the only other person I knew in the world who, who wrote books, who lived in uh, Florida. And I said, look, I, I, I write more easily in the first person than the third person. Can, can, am I allowed to write another book in the third person? And there was this kind of long, in the first person, there was a long silence at the other end. She said, you're a writer. You can do anything you like. 
<clears throat> but I did really feel that in order to be a proper writer, I had to write in the third person. And um, I think because of that, Justin Case took about uh, 400 drafts, where um, How I Live Now had taken really almost one draft, with a, with a few changes, a little bit of change in the ending. Um, in the original version of uh, How I Live Now, Edmund was 12, um, because I wanted him to be terribly pure and almost pre-sexual, but l luckily uh, everybody who read it, without exception, uh, agreed that he ought to be a little bit older than 12, especially if he was going to be having sex. Um, the ending was a little bit shorter. I'm trying to think if, it, if there was much else that was different. Uh, it was pretty much the same, but in just in case, um, I just kept adding characters in, there was no plot. At some point I was thinking, uh, I remember sitting upstairs writing and thinking, God, they're all sitting downstairs at the kitchen table. Uh, my characters, they've all got a glass of, of, you know, a cup of tea and they're all thinking, well, we're not doing anything, what are we going to do? And I used to get quite desperate with, with Justin. I used to just sort of send him off to the shops, hoping something terrible would happen to him on the way. Um, because I just couldn't really, I knew I wanted it to be about fate and a boy who was obsessed with the idea of fate. And I knew that the beginning was the, the, the little brother standing on the windowsill. But I kind of didn't know what was going to happen after that. Um, so it took a, a very long time. And, and I wrote oh, about 100 drafts of it. Um, I, I must have written about four or five hundred thousand words in the end, and just thrown away four, five, six whole books practically. Uh, I also had made a mistake that that I've been told lots of people do at the very beginning, which is Justin, who was at the very centre of this, was a very blank character. Uh, and when my editor, who's in the audience today, and to whom I owe absolutely everything, but I can't see where she is, so I can't look her deep in the eyes. Oh, there she is. I'm looking you deep in the eyes with gratitude. And my lovely editor said, you can't have a, a, a blank in the, in the middle of a book. It just doesn't work. And I said, ah, yes, but you know, this is very postmodern, and, and I'm writing a new form of literature. And you know, the character in the middle of it has to be blank. And all the characters around him are really, really interesting. But he is just a mysterious, ethereal sort of character to whom things happen. Um, eventually, I put the book down for a couple of months. And I came back to it. And I reread it. And I thought, oh, Jesus, this character in the middle is a complete blank. He's really boring. So. Um, I came around to thinking maybe she was right. Having edited four or 500,000 books in her time, I gave her the benefit of the doubt. Um, <clears throat> and so that, that uh, changed. I, and I made Justin sort of funnier and, and a little bit sharper and um, tried to give him a little bit more personality and uh, realized that if he was just a blank, then it was kind of impossible to read a book where you don't care about the character at all. I guess that's sort of obvious, um, but it wasn't obvious to me. Um, I think I might just stop for a second and uh, read you a little bit of Justin, just in, in case. Uh, oh, hello. Hello. In case uh, there are people who haven't read it. It's only been out for a week. I imagine that most people haven't read it. 
And I think this might just kind of give you a little bit of an idea about it. Um, the other thing I thought about when I started reading just, was started writing just in case was that it can't have the same feeling as how I live now um, because the last thing I want to do is to write something that feels like a sequel or, or people say, oh, this is her style. She writes uh, how I live now type books about sad anorexic teenage girls. So I thought uh, I, would, I would go for a teenage boy this time and see what happened to him. Um, and people have asked me, you know, is it really hard to write a, a boy? Uh, and my answer generally is that Justin actually isn't all that much of a boy. Um, he's not exactly a football-loving, macho uh, kind of character. He's sort of right there in the middle of the old gender spectrum. Anyway, I'm going to read a little bit of this and um, see what you think. Okay. David Case's baby brother had recently learned to walk, but he wasn't what you'd call an expert. He toddled past his brother to the large open window of the older boy's room. There, with a great deal of effort, he pulled himself on the window, up onto the windowsill, scrunched up like a caterpillar, pushed into a crouch, and stood, teetering precariously, his gaze fixed solemnly on the church tower a quarter mile away. He tipped forward slightly toward the void, just as a large black bird swooped past. It paused and turned an intelligent red eye to meet the child's. Why not fly, suggested the bird, and the boy's eyes widened with delight. Below them on the street, a greyhound stood motionless, his elegant pale head turned in the direction of the incipient catastrophe. Calmly, the dog shifted the angle of his muzzle, creating an invisible guy line that eased the child back an inch or two towards equilibrium. Safer now, but seduced by the fact that a bird had spoken to him, the little boy threw out his arms and thought, yes, fly. David did not hear his brother think fly. Something else made him look up. A voice, a finger on his shoulder, the brush of lips against his ear. In the instant of looking up, David took the measure of the situation, shouted, Charlie, and lunged across the room. He grabbed the child by the cape of his Batman pajamas, wrapped his arms around him with enough force to flatten his ribs, and sank to the floor, squashing the boy's face into the safe hollow beneath his chin. Charlie squeaked with outrage, but David barely heard. Panting, he unpinned the boy, gripping, gripping him at, at arm's length. What were you doing, he shouted. What on earth do you think you were doing? Well, said Charlie. I was bored just playing with my toys, and you weren't paying attention to me, so I thought I would get a better look at the world. I climbed up on the window, which wasn't easy, and once I managed to do that, I felt strange and happy with nothing but sky all around me. And all of a sudden, a bird flew past and looked at me and said I could fly, and a bird hasn't ever talked to me before, and I figured a bird would know what he was talking about when it came to flying, so I thought he must be right. Oh. And there was also a pretty great dog on the pavement who looked up and pointed at me with his nose so I didn't fall. And just when I was about to leap out and soar through the air, you grabbed me and hurt me a lot, which made me very, very cross. And I didn't get a chance to fly, even though I'm sure I could have. The little boy explained all this slowly and carefully so as not to be misunderstood. Birdie, fly, were the words that came out of his mouth. David turned away, heart pounding. It was useless trying to communicate with a one-year-old. Even if his brother had possessed the vocabulary, he couldn't have answered David's question. Charlie did what he did because he was a dumb kid, too dumb to realize that birds don't talk 
and kids can't fly. My God, David thought, if I'd been two seconds slower, he'd be dead. My brother would be dead, but I'd be the one shattered, crushed, destroyed by guilt and blame, and everyone everywhere for the rest of my life whispering, he's that kid who killed his brother. Two seconds, just two seconds, were all that stood between normal, everyday life and utter, total catastrophe. He sat down hard, mind spinning. Why had this never occurred to him? He could fall down a manhole, collapse with a stroke. A car crash could sever a spinal cord. He could catch bird flu. A tree could fall on him. There were comets, killer bees, foreign armies, floods, serial killers. There was buried nuclear waste, ethnic cleansing, alien invasion, a plane crash. Suddenly, everywhere he looked, he saw catastrophe, bloodshed, the demise of the planet, the ruin of the human race, not to mention, to pinpoint the exact source of his anxiety, possible pain and suffering to himself. Who could have thought up a scenario this bleak? Whoever, whatever it was, he could feel the dark malevolence of it settling in, making itself at home like some vicious bird of prey, its sharp claws sunk deep into the quivering jelly of his terrified brain. He pulled his brother close, tucking him in against his body, pressed his lips to the child's face. What if? He became admired in what if. The weight of it wrapped itself around his ankles and dragged him under. Now that idea um, of a boy who's, uh, whose brush with death causes him to go into kind of a tailspin and become obsessed with the idea that fate is out to get him uh, is something that came sort of deep from the, the center of my psyche. I'd sort of collected terrible accidents my whole life. Um, and one of, my, one of my favorites was the one about two tourists who came to London and noticed that it was starting to rain. And they hadn't brought an umbrella with them. So they sat under a tree to shelter from the, the storm in Hyde Park. And the tree they were sitting under was struck by lightning. And they were reduced to two little pyramids of, of ash, which they found the next day. Um, and I think it's the sort of thing that almost everybody thinks about at some time in their life, that if they'd left the house 10 minutes later, or if they'd been on the plane that went off yesterday, or, uh, you know, I mean, I, one of the events in my life that was absolutely hideously traumatic was um, when I first had my, when my child was four or five months old, I stuck her in the buggy and turned around to lock the front door of my house. And the buggy, I mean, it was like that Russian movie where the buggy goes down the steps. Uh, it went down the steps and I hadn't tied her in. And when it hit the pavement, the buggy went forward like this and she came out on her head. And she could very easily have been killed. I mean, she was quite badly injured, so much so that they asked me a lot of very, very upsetting questions when I took her into uh, casualty. Like, do you feel very frustrated in yourself? Uh, and um, for six months after that, I was actually terribly depressed because I thought, you know, this is the sort of moment where you could replay it over and over in your mind for the rest of your life, thinking, you know, what if I had actually killed my own child? Um, and so I got interested in this whole idea of, of writing about fate. Um, another aspect of the book that um, has turned out to have a kind of lovely, quirky, fateish quality for me is that um, one of the first characters I added into the plot was 
uh, well, Justin, I mean, David Case goes on and uh, the voice of fate comes in and says, in fact, he is after, is after David and he, he does want to kill him. Um, and David changes his name and he changes his clothes and he changes the way he looks and he tries to sort of change himself enough so that fate won't recognize him. And one of the things that I gave him as a, as a kind of supporting character, a kind of Greek chorus, was, um, was a greyhound. And I don't know where the greyhound came from, but he just popped into my mind one day and I thought that's what Justin needs. He needs a dog. He needs um, a kind of silent but very supportive character who will just be with him when he needs him. I didn't want to give him a real dog because I'd established his parents as being kind of unaware of his needs and I figured they weren't the sort of people who would ever buy him a dog. So I gave him an imaginary dog. and. Um, the imaginary dog uh, can be seen by some people and not by others, but he's terribly wise and very serene, and um, he offers this kind of um, uh, psychic sustenance, really, to Justin. He, he soothes him, he encourages him, he puts his muzzle in his hand and, and makes him feel that things are going to be all right. Um, and I fell in love with the dog. and. Um, I fell in love with him to such an extent that when my daughter started saying, Mommy, Mommy, I want to get a dog, I thought, yes, we'll get a greyhound because they're wise and serene and they'll, be, they'll offer psychic sustenance. It will lie at my feet when I write and it will put its head on my, on my, on my toes and, and it, will, it will whine happily. It will make noises that encourage me when I'm writing well. And, I had this idea of an invisible greyhound that would be absolutely perfect. Then I realized that I live in the middle of London and that probably wouldn't be a good idea. Greyhound's an awfully big dog and you know, you've got to pick up all the poo and all that. So I thought, well, maybe I'll get a, a, a slightly smaller dog, like a, a whippet. Um, but then somebody told me that whippets are very high strung and I don't know, maybe I should get a, a lurcher. Um, and it was at that fateful moment that I met Kathy Cassidy, who some of you may know as a wonderful writer for children, who's sitting at the back. And she has a lurcher at home. She does live in the middle of absolutely nowhere, as far as I can tell, in Scotland. So her lurcher can run about 100 miles a day if it wants to. But she said, oh, you must get a lurcher. They are the most wonderful dogs in the world. So still in love with my greyhound in the book, we drove three and a half hours out to Gloucestershire uh, just to look at a litter of puppies. Anybody here ever gone just to look at a litter of puppies? Yeah, it doesn't. Anyone who hasn't done that, I can warn you, don't do it. All the way there, we told my daughter, we are not coming home with any puppies. We're just going to browse. Um, well, we're weak people, and we came home with two of them. And you'll be astonished to hear that they're not wise and serene. Um, they don't lie at my feet when I'm working. Uh, I leave them downstairs and I come back to find that they've chewed through all the telephone cords, most of the pillows on the sofa, they've eaten the rug in the kitchen and they're starting on the furniture now. Um, so I think the moral of the story is beware of the characters you create because they will come and bite you. Um, Anyway, it's, I feel I've, I've been a bit rambling today, uh, so I probably haven't covered anything you're even remotely interested in. Um, but I, I suppose to sum up on the subject of what I want to do when I grow up, 
I am finally writing books, although I just begged my editor to give me a few months off uh, on the way over to the tent this morning, because I've written the third novel now, and I thought I might need a break. Um, but it took me, uh, let's see, uh, 38 years from when it first was obvious that I should be a writer to when I actually did write my first book. Um, and I guess the moral of that story is uh, be persistent if you're thinking of ever writing a book, uh, because it's never too late. And um, if you haven't found a career yet, uh, I'll give you all 38 years to decide what you want to do for a living. And if you haven't figured out by then, uh, you may well be in trouble, but you know, may take you 45. So um, I guess the, I guess it's a question of taking your time to figure out what it is you really want to do in life. Um, or either that or being perceptive enough to realize from the very beginning what you really want to do in life um, and staying out of cul-de-sacs. Anyway, that's about as wise as I can be with um, uh, the amount of jet lag I have at the moment. And you'll also notice a bit of a cold. So I think I will um, abnegate all the rest of my responsibility for this talk and, um, and open it up to see if anybody has any questions or wants any advice on buying a dog. The third book is called um, The Dark Ages, and it's about, uh, it's kind of a love story between two boys, but not a sexual love story. And it, uh, it takes place in the early 60s. One of them is a, a, a boy who, at boarding school who's very, very unhappy at boarding school. And the other one is a boy who lives in a, in a fisherman's hut on the beach because he's kind of slipped through the, the cracks of society. And um, it takes place on a stretch of the Suffolk coast, which, is, uh, which was one of the largest Saxon um, uh, settlements in, in England, in, in Britain. And so the Dark Ages is all about being 15 and being in boarding school. And it's also about the 60s. And it's also about uh, the actual historical Dark Ages. Um, and, and really, it's a kind of, it's yet another sort of coming of age story. Um, and uh, yeah, that's kind of pretty much it. So we'll see how that one does. And that one's back in the first person, you'll be pleased to know, or maybe not pleased to know. <laughs> so did you always know you wanted to write about teenagers? Is that like just something that you, do you always feel spoken to about like teenage stories? Do you want to write books about grown-ups or little kids or? I. I I think the reason that I write about teenagers is because my own adolescence went on for about 30 years. Um, <laughs> and I never really felt grown up. And in fact, I still don't feel terribly grown up. Uh, it's, it's partly my generation and partly um, a, a lack of clarity, uh, you know, as I've sort of just described. And what, what, I, what did I want to do when I grew up? I mean, it took me till I was 45 years old, really, to feel as if as if I was a grown-up in any, in any way. And I think the only reason I really did feel like a grown-up when I wrote my first book was that I sort of had finally figured out what it was I wanted to do with my life. Um, writing about teenagers uh, comes from within. I mean, there was a, an article in The Observer recently where the woman who came to interview me said, 
you know, I walked into her front door and expected to see a whole bunch of teenagers lounging around. Uh, and I had to explain to her that it doesn't come from observing teenagers. It comes from really being one, almost. I mean, I try to be slightly more responsible, and I try to make my bed every morning. But um, aside from that, I, I think that that sort of level of not seeing the world in a, in a very clear way is something that a lot of people um, hang on to for much longer than anybody ever admits. And you'll hear lots of people who will say to you, yes, I'm a, I'm a very important barrister, and, and I make 400,000 pounds a year, but I always feel like a little bit of a fraud. And I think that's that slight kind of adolescence feel, adolescent feeling coming through that you know, you're pretending to be a grown-up, but you're not really. You still have all that sort of funny insecurity and, and that, that worry that you don't really know what you want to be when you grow up. Um, some of the characters that I've written, I think, probably could just as well be written about 30-year-olds. Um, but it starts to get quite sad, I think, when you, when you write about a 30-year-old who has no idea how to interpret the world, even though it may be true. But I think it's somehow slightly easier to accept when you're talking about a 15 or a 16-year-old, because that's a time of life where you're absolutely meant to be confused. Whereas by the time you're 30, even if you really have no clue what you want to do with your life, you have to slightly pretend that you do. Um, so I suppose writing about adolescence is, just gives that excuse for massive um, the characters who, who really are suffering from a huge lack of clarity. Um, I, I was quite interested to see um, somebody sent me an article, a review that had been written about Just In Case that said um, this is a book about a mentally ill boy uh, who slips further and further into psychosis. And <laughs> I thought, oh, God, <laughs> that was, certainly wasn't the book I meant to write. Oh, and shouldn't be given to children of a sense, to, uh, to teens of a sensitive nature. Um, and I, I think with Justin, I mean, I'll be interested to hear what people, if anybody's read it, feels about Justin, whether he is mentally ill. I never thought of him as mentally ill. I thought of him as deeply confused. And uh, the fact that he hears the voice of fate in his head um, isn't an indication that he's schizophrenic and he hears voices, but that he genuinely isn't sure whether he believes that fate is a force outside himself or whether it is just um, something in his head saying, terrible things happen in life, and how do you live with the fact that, that terrible things happen in life and then you die, uh, you know, which is an absolute gruesome description of what happens in life. And yet, we all go on and we have you know, great happinesses and, and great joy in life, and yet somehow manage to push that, the awfulness to the back of our mind. Um, and he's, for me, he's a character who's struggling with that uh, with that conflict, and that, th and he's anything but psychotic. He's actually quite. I think it's a it's something that we all struggle with, um, no matter how old we are. There you go. Um, how did you come up with the? How how did you come up with the idea of the little brother who wanted to jump out the window? Because it sounds a bit bizarre. <laughs> You know, I think it came from, there's a, there was a writer in London, um, a woman called Alice Thomas Ellis, who most of you probably haven't heard of, but I heard her um, interviewed on the radio about 
oh, a long time ago, 12 or 15 years ago, and she had six or seven children, I think, and one of them had died falling off a roof. And she was an old woman by this time, very articulate, and she said that her whole life she had replayed the moment where the child fell off the roof um, in her head. And she would dream about it and she would replay it in waking hours, always just reaching out, thinking if she'd been one second faster, she might have saved his life. And then her life wouldn't have been completely ruined by the death of this child. Um, and it was something that seemed, that just struck such a chord in me, the idea that if something so awful happens and you think if only I had done things a little bit differently, it might not, I could have changed the course of history. I think it's such a kind of emotional and, and um, universal thought that um, I thought I would give the same kind of thing to this boy. But I didn't want to start the book off with a tragedy and actually I didn't think it needed it. I think. The, the boy didn't have to fall out the window. It was just the possibility of him falling out the window um, that sort of clicked this, this switch in Justin's head and made him think, oh my God, this is what could happen. Did you look to? Sorry? Uh, this this woman has asked if the if I think the best readers for the books are the same age as the characters of the book, so sort of fifteen presumably. You know, I I think it's almost impossible for a writer to judge who should be reading their book, if anyone. Um, it I just I write the books. I don't. I'm always amazed that anybody reads them and and that anybody likes them. Um, because in a way I'm writing for myself. I think the only people who might possibly be interested in them are middle-aged women. And yet I'm writing for myself as an adolescent, so maybe only really immature middle-aged women will like them. Um, so I, I've been hearing, getting a little bit of feedback. And of course, when you write a book, all the people who read it first are you know, usually women between about 25 and 50, because it's your agent and your editor. And you know, I said mine to my sisters, and uh, and and so it's ages down the line before anybody fifteen or sixteen reads the book. And I'm always astonished when they say I really liked it, because I think, oh, <laughs> well, that's a bonus. <laughs> you know, the target audience likes it too. But I've had nine-year-olds come up to me and say they absolutely love how I live now. I don't really understand. I mean, I I think there are some very mature readers out there who who can read anything. Um, you know, how do you know? When I was 15, I was reading Dostoevsky and Samuel Beckett and, you know, really dark, uh, passionate kind of drama. And I, I think that's, I mean, for me, I, you can only really write for, for your own tastes. So, you know, you, and then you cross your fingers and you hope somebody likes it. Somebody have like one really quick question? We've got like two seconds left. Or you can just ask her later when we do a signing. I just wondered about anorexia and whether that was something you had a particular knowledge about or interest in. Yeah, well, I was never anorexic, as you might be able to tell. Uh, but I was, I was always quite a chunky kid. 
And I started with that whole kind of body image madness when I was about 12 or 13 of always thinking I was too fat. I mean, when I look back at pictures now, I think, you know, I would give anything to be that fat again because I was, you know, relative to now. I looked fantastic. But teen, I mean, it certainly was true when I was a kid. Um, I suspect it's still true now that there is a lot of body fascism around and a lot of pressure on girls to be, to be skinny. Um, you know, I look at people like Victoria Beckham and I think you just look like a skeleton. It's just really, really awful. Um, and yet I've wasted a huge amount of my life thinking that if only I were thinner, my life would be better. And it's just so not true. So I guess it's the kind of subject that for, for an awful lot of women is sort of lurking in the background, you know, that awful ambivalence about food. Um, somebody was telling me last night that the thing to do if you really love chips is uh, to or, ha, order a plate of chips, eat two of them, and then pour water over the rest of them uh, so that you're not tempted to eat them. And you know, <laughs> the, the, the level of madness is, is, is so extreme, I think. I mean, I think women who look in the mirror and say, I love what I look like, are, are few and far between, and I am deeply, deeply jealous of them. But that kind of, and also that sort of distorted body image is a kind of physical manifestation of what I was talking about of the distorted psychic image, you know, where you don't know who you are when, when, when you're a teenager. Sometimes it's very hard to see what your own strengths are and see what, what you're capable of. So it's all that, I mean, I, I, I think of an, an awful lot of life is looking into a funfair mirror and not being able to see yourself in any way that's clear. And I'm sure everybody's had the experience where somebody comes up to you and says, oh, I was always so frightened to talk to you. You always seemed so uh, reserved. And you say, oh, God, I was absolutely terrified. I didn't want to open my mouth because I was so scared that everybody would think I was an idiot. Or, you know, something like that where, you know, your perception of yourself is completely different from everybody else's perception of yourself. And that translates into body image as well, so. There you go. Okay, that's it for now. Um, we're gonna, if you'll keep your seats for a second, we'll go over to the children's tent, the bookshop, and you can come have your book signed and ask all the rest of your questions then. So if you can give a round of applause for Meg for coming today. Thank you. So thank you all for being here. We'll see you next door in a minute.